I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore America's rich past and its current thought leadership through conversations with leading historians and best-selling authors. Today, I'm interviewing Nick Bosbanes, author of Cross of Snow, A Life of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, which came out June 2nd, 2020, and we did the interview on July 29th. Enjoy. so glad that uh, Howard McClure had an opening for the last Wednesday in July so that we could plug in Nick Bosbanes, uh, who lives outside of Boston and has written this marvelous uh, new book, Cross of Snow, A Life of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. I was uh, reading the Wall Street Journal, uh, as I do every day, except Sunday, and I came across a review of this book, and it was such a compelling review that I knew that I wanted to read the book, review the book, and see if I could connect with the author. And uh, and lo and behold, uh, I did. And uh, Nick uh, is, is a wonderful guy. Uh, he's written, this is his 10th book, uh, and uh, he's uh, also written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, Smithsonian uh, Magazine. But he's probably the leading authority on just the subject of books generally. And his, he's, a, uh, he's written a book on the history of paper. He's written books on book collecting. Uh, but, but anyway, uh, uh, after I, I read this book, it, it more than exceeded my expectations uh, from the Wall Street Journal review, and so uh, I wrote my own review of it, uh, which you've had a chance to see, but uh, I don't ever remember being as enchanted with a biographical subject uh, as I was with Longfellow after reading Nick's book. So, so Nick, uh, welcome to the Turtle Creek Breakfast Club. Thank you, Tommy. Thank you again for that extraordinarily wonderful review that you wrote. It's it, remains inspirational for me. Thank you. It's so rare when you encounter someone who seems to understand totally what I set out to accomplish, you know, and it went beyond just this life of Henry Longfellow, went to his work, his domestic life, the significance of his wife and everything that he did. So, and you seem to have, you clearly comprehended and expressed all of that. So thank you before we go anywhere else with this. It's it's a, All right. Well, to meet you too. Nick, as I said, you've written a total of 10 books, but this, your most recent, is your first biography. So people typically write books when they hear a call. Yeah. So what called you to write about Henry Wadsworth Longfellow? Well, it helps that I'm 77, you know, and I figured I've earned the right to do something I really want to do. And I wanted to do a biography, and there's a Many reasons for that. David McCullough, who I've interviewed a number of times over the years, had said to me a few years ago, Nick, you've done these other great books. And he's the one, by the way, who called me our leading authority of books on books. So that's kind of nice. He said, maybe you should try a biography. You will not believe the experience. So I had it in my mind. I wanted to do a biography. After I'd done the book on paper, which was published in 2013, and which was a finalist, second place winner for the Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Nonfiction, that pat me 
myself on the back here, if I don't mind, you don't mind. Uh, it was time to turn to Longfellow. And in uh, 2007, so what's that, 13 years ago, I did a bicentennial piece on Henry's 200th birthday for Smithsonian Magazine. I went to the Longfellow house, which you just asked the membership, and, and one of whom has visited it. And I just, number one, couldn't believe what was there. It is, it is unique among National Park Service historic sites. And I, and I am a writer. I understand fully the meaning of the word unique. It's one of a kind. Because not only is it a home where an author lived, but it contains all of, all of the, all of the uh, possessions in there, all of the artworks, all of the furniture, all of everything that they use, the cutlery. Uh, is authentic to the original owners and according to the National Park Service, which administers it, there is between 750,000 to 800,000 archival materials administered by professional archivists. They are waiting for someone like me to come in and take a look at it. So, And it's nearby. It's only 45 minutes from where I live to that, the Harvard University Houghton Library, where all of Henry's literary manuscripts are stored, is also nearby. So the availability the ready availability of materials. But beyond all that, the most compelling reason for me, and I'll go out and say it, is I, I had become angry, really. I'd become angry at the way Henry Longfellow had been treated by 20th century modernist and new critic, uh, uh, the literati of the day. And, and, and what I argue, and I, I suggest, was, a, was a, an orchestrated, I don't want to say conspiracy or plot. I mean, that's a too severe word. But there was an agreement that he was no longer relevant as, as a literary force. And despite the fact that he was the most celebrated, the most popular, the most beloved writer of the 19th century, not only in the United States, but throughout the world, he was read and admired in, in, uh, in 30 different translations. When he traveled to England in 1868, it was basically like a state tour. He traveled in an entourage and he was received at Windsor Castle by Queen Victoria who couldn't believe she wrote in her diary that night that she looked around and the domestic staff were finding little vantage points where they could get a peek at him. And she was stunned. Who is this? How is it that the staff, the, you know, I, I'm putting quotes around the servants. We know what, what we're talking about, the domestic staff. How do they know who this poet is? Well, it turned out everybody knew who this poet was. And not only did they know him, he was more popular in England at the time than Alfred Lord Tennyson, who was the poet laureate. Tennyson himself said, I make 3,000 pounds a year, but Longfellow makes 5,000. <laughs> so and he was joking. He was happy. They were friends. And the picture on the cover, which you showed, if I may, may I? Yes. yes. Because it is, it is relevant. You know, it, kind of, it shows Henry at, really at the height of his popularity and his celebrity. That's the Longfellow known to everyone, the bearded white, uh, white beard, the flowing white beard, this quiet voice this voice of reason and calm, that's the Longfellow known to the world. And that photograph was taken in England during that tour by Julia Margaret Cameron, who was a famous uh, portraitist. And actually, it was while he was visiting with Tennyson, Tennyson brought him over for that photograph. So I thought that's the Longfellow that everyone knows. But I wanted to also find out about the Longfellow that people didn't know. And also this wonderful poet who had been dismissed Really, and I make a case for it. I'm not just, I don't make wild allegations. I, Talmud, you read the book very carefully, a very wonderful reading. Thank you. But I think you can, you can affirm the fact that I don't state, a, I don't make any statement of fact without a factual assertion, without a piece of documentation. I mean, my notes 
are longer than any chapter, 11,000 words is the, uh, but anyway, so it was really to pay homage to a person I thought had been forgotten and dismissed. And that, and that also at a time when people are beginning to look again at his work and looking at it with great admiration. And I think the fact that you were taken by that review of the Wall Street Journal speaks exactly to what I tried to accomplish. Take another look at this man, take another look at his life and look at what he accomplished. And maybe there's, there remains a place for him in American letters. So I'm sorry, that's the long answer to the question, but well, there are a lot of factors that got me into it. I mean, in support of what you just said, for those who've, who've bought the book or who are thinking about buying the book and you think, oh my gosh, this book is way too thick. About 70 pages is devoted to uh, bibliographic notes and support for, so it's not uh, quite as thick a, a read. It's actually only about 380 pages or so. So don't be intimidated, uh, but it's just uh, in support of, of Nick's research. Uh, I don't know who that is, but we'll keep going. Um, who is that? Oh, it's Ken Murkison. Hello, Ken. Uh, anyway, uh, Nick, your book uh, obviously has an intriguing title cross of snow so how does that title tie into the life of longfellow you know i i mentioned that he was the most celebrated and best known poet of the 19th century and i that's a, that's a fact which is which is uncontested and paul, paul revere's ride of course was probably i think arguably the most memorized poem in american literary history everybody knows paul revere's ride everybody knows Iowatha. Evangeline, we can go on and on. But Cross of Snow was a sonnet that he wrote on July the 9th, 1879, 18 years to the day of the death of his wife, Fanny, in a horrific accident. And briefly, I don't know, we, I guess you, to, to appreciate the, the Cross of Snow sonnet and what he wrote, you have to understand that uh, they were living on top of the world. I call that chapter Camelot on the Charles. Everything was wonderful. They were, everything was going along swimmingly. And then one day she's, Fanny, the wife, is uh, clipping lockets of golden hair from one of her daughters to seal in little packets, uh, little white envelopes. And she's attempting to seal them with a candle. And somehow the only witnesses are these children. So it's kind of sketchy about what precisely happened. But her dress catches fire. She bursts into flames. She rushes, screaming to the next to the study next door. Henry wakes up, tries to put out the fire, succeeds finally, but much too late. And that is why he grows the beard. By the way, prior to this event, his wife knew him only as a clean-shaven, very handsome, dapper guy, because he suffered facial burns and he he never shaved again. So that. There are several Longfellows. There's the pre-Fanny Death Longfellow and the supposed Fanny Death Long. But he, the the devastation, the grief that he suffered, the way it affected the poetry that came afterwards was profound. In fact, we talk about clubs. We'll get to this a bit later. Part of the Dante Club, which everybody knows about, met to help him become the first American to do a complete translation of all of Dante into English. And Henry did that in the aftermath of Fanny's death, but all of that aside, how did he bear up under this? They had five; they had six children, five of whom survived. One died as a died as a toddler. But he said, "I've got these five children," and and and, he, and in the letter of condolence he received from a friend, George William Curtis, 
It's just a, a, a very touching letter of condolence. Henry replied, he said, to the outside, to the outside world, I am calm, but inward, I am bleeding to death. And that he never, he never let on the extent and the nature of his, he didn't whine out loud. He never whined. If, if he did, if he wrote anything, it was to become, it was to make peace. I mean, you read his poems after he doesn't blame anybody or any cosmic forces. He understands that things happen. But on this 18th anniversary of her death, and they've been married 18 years almost to the day in his bedroom on the second floor of uh, what we now call Longfellow House, was then known as Craigie House. Uh, and if you go there, the room is intact. The bed is where they lived as a couple uh, is there, where she died, where he would later die, where four of their five children were born. And in this room on the wall opposite the bed is a painting of Fanny. So to understand the poem, you have to understand, as, my, as I read it, it is a contemplation of two paintings. One, the painting of his wife that he sees every night on a personal, intimate basis, which comprises the first eight lines of the sonnet, Cross of Snow. And in the final six lines, every sonnet, as we know, is 14 lines. It follows a traditional structure of iambic pentameter. And Henry Longfellow, by the way, I make this as a flat statement, writes the best sonnets of any American writer ever. I mean, you'll I, point me out a, a, a poet who writes a better, a, an American poet who writes a better sonnet than Longfellow, and I'll buy you a cigar. Uh, but that said, this was uh, also in 1876, there was a, a discovery, uh, and it's a discovery. We're moving westward. You mentioned earlier uh, about the first transcontinental call to San Francisco. Well, I mean, the West was being discovered and pioneered, and so in the Rockies, They'd come across this mountain in the in the Rockies, and it and it displayed, and there was were photographs taken of it, which were spectacular and sensational. And a man named Thomas Moran actually went out and painted it. And it was called the Mountain of the Holy Cross, and it's a massive mountain. And on the side, there are fissures that kind of displayed and left a very real image of a cross. So this, these are the years of manifest destiny. We have obvious re religious connotations, whatever. But there's also a cross as something as a symbol of contrition or whatever, or guilt, or if not guilt, but grief. And so Henry writes this poem, and it's called The Cross of Snow. And the first, I mean, we have it in the book. You don't want me to read it. It's if, I mean, I could do it if you want. But uh, the first eight lines is a contemplation. It's a, in the long sleepless watches of the night, the face of one long dead looks at me from the wall where round its head the night lamp casts a halo of pale light. Pale light, pardon my Boston accent. Here in this here, in this room, she died. And never through martyrdom of fire, nor can in books be read the tale of a life more benedite. Benedite is perfectly appropriate. It means blessed. It comes from Benedictus, St. Benedict. Then he turns abruptly in the next six lines, and I can't do those so well from memory, but then he, but he does say, there is a mountain in the distant west that sun-defying in its deep ravines displays a cross of snow upon its side. We're going to do it. I might as well do it right. I've got it right here. <laughs> okay, let's just finish it this way. There is a mountain in the distant west that sun-defying in its deep ravines displays a cross, a cross of snow upon its side. Such is the cross I wear upon my breast these 18 years through all the changing scenes and seasons, changeless since the day she died. Now, if that doesn't give you goose pimples and send ripples up and down your arms and you say, my God, he's bearing through this and he's bearing through it with grace and dignity. What does he do with this poem? He folds it up 
and thrifty Yankee that he is. Pardon me. I know I'm talking to my good friends in Dallas, but he was a very thrifty Puritan. He didn't waste paper. So this sonnet, the first eight lines are on one side. I examined the original in the Harvard Library. And the final six lines are on the back, so you have to flip it. And I do have a, a photograph of both sheets in the book as the frontispiece. He put it in an envelope and he tucked it among his papers, remained unpublished. It was discovered after his death. So when we talk about all the famous, wonderful poems that people read, uh, were, were loved and memorized and understood and quoted to other people and gave his gifts, this one he kept was personal and private and yet so poignant and powerful for me that I thought this, not only does this give me a structure, the sonnet in 14 lies, lines, kind of an architectural blueprint to write this book, but it gave me the title. It suggested the title for the book. So mm-hmm. that's the long answer. I'm sorry for Cross of Snow, but uh, you have to, uh, there's so many things that you have to really appreciate. The painting of Fanny, the painting of Thomas Moran. By, and nowhere, I had to prove, we talk about documentation. Nowhere do we know that he actually, does he actually say that he saw the painting by Moran. So I had to prove that he did. And I believe I did. I mean, I, I give you the documentation. We know we went to the exposition in Philadelphia in 1876. It was there. I found a letter Moran wrote to him, first time published in my book, writing him. I understand you're coming to the exposition. May I come and show you some pictures I have prepared of Hiawatha? And I don't know if he did. Henry always answered his letters, but there's no letter. No letter survives. And there's also some books that he saw that I, we believe he saw that had uh, reproduction. So there's no question that he saw this image because there was no television, there were no newspaper photographs, but he had to have seen and been electrified as everyone else was by this extraordinary mountain in the West that had this cross on its side. And he used that as an image, as an image to describe the grief and how he, and how he soldiered his way through it these 18 years in peace and, and, and dignity and grace. And it just typifies the man who he was for me. And also, it's a beautiful poem. Beyond that, it's a, it's it's an exquisite poem. No doubt about that. Now, going a little deeper on the importance of his second wife, Fanny. His first wife uh, died at in her twenties, and and uh, and then he met Fanny not long thereafter in Europe, and uh, they had a protracted courtship. <laughs> <Who knew? laughs> but they finally, they got married. They were, they were married for 18 years. And uh, you talk about during those 18 years, what a major influence on his work she was. Uh, you say that, uh, quote, she was an essential nutrient to his creative impulse. Boy, oh boy. So, <laughs> so, so, so is it, uh, Nick, is it fair to characterize their collaboration during those 18 years as a writing partnership? You know, that's a fabulous question. You're the first person to ask that. I'm waiting for somebody to ask that. <laughs> it's a terrific question. I mean, the, the segment that you just read, I so carefully constructed that because who can say that it was a working daily collaboration? It's very hard to find her fingerprints on his work, but her influence is there. And and she's a, a, a 19th century woman, early 19th century patrician woman. And uh, she very well means her, her father was Nathan Appleton, was a textile manufacturer. The, he founded Lowell, Massachusetts, which was the first industri- text, uh, planned uh, industrial city in the Northeast. 
And also the, the factors leading up to the Civil War. I mean, he was a, a manufacturer who was reliant on Southern uh, cotton. So these are other factors. But she was exquisitely educated at a time when there were no schools for women. So if you came, if you, came, if you were a, a daughter of means, and I say daughter, there were no colleges yet for women. Mount Holyoke, which is the first, was 1837. So she, but she was taught by private tutors, Elizabeth Palmer Peabody, George Barrow Emerson, Francis Bieber, tutored her in multiple languages. She was multilingual, at least six languages. So she did work with him. And once, and the courtship, by the way, which we don't have time to get into, but it is quite a subtext, isn't it? I mean, it's quite a backstory. It took seven years. I mean, he met her and he was blown away. He was floored and he had recently lost his first wife, greatly grief stricken over that. She died after, in the aftermath of a miscarriage while they were traveling through Europe so he could learn more languages. He was fluent in 15 languages. His house in Cambridge still has 13,000 books and 15 languages and 45 dialects, all of which he could read and understand. Not only did he translate Dante into English, he translated German uh, works into English. He, he introduced American readers to Goethe and Schiller. Uh, it's amazing. He was a polymath, a brilliant man, and she was his intellectual equal. And what he was looking for, as much as anything, people say, oh, he married wealthy. And as a wedding present, by the way, his father-in-law, Nathan Appleton, presented them with the house, the long, I mean, he bought, which had served as George Washington's official residence and command headquarters during the, during the siege of Boston. That house is now known today as Longfellow's House, Washington's Headquarters National Historic Site. So it is a very significant structure, not only for the 19th century implications, but the 18th century implications and its role in the Revolutionary War. And that's a whole other substory of how that came to pass. But the short answer is yes, I believe she's a collaborator, but I can't say that in the book because I don't have the documentation to nail it down. And if I can't nail it down, then I have to dance around it with the words that you quoted. Yes, I mean, you can see it. She writes letters and she'll be talking about well, I, I, I suppose I can tell you, she'll write to her sister, her sister, that Henry is now working on his idol in hexameters. Well, he's working on Evangeline, right? And he's, and he's going to do it in dactylic hexameters, which is a very risky thing to do. That's a meter that was used for the Iliad and the Odyssey and classic works. English poets and English speakers were, were advised, stay away from this kind of meter. He thought it was correct for this. And... But she understood it, and she was writing how she's working over with him. She also directly collaborated, by the way, in the first year of their marriage. They did, they did a 750-page book, two volumes of the poems and poetry and poets of Europe, translated by Henry and Fanny. Now, we know she definitely worked with him on that. She writes, we, I wrote, worked on the preface today of our book. And when you read her journal, which I, I quote, she was a wonderful writer, a wonderful artist. And I write about her writings for the first time at any length uh, in, uh, in this book. And by the way, that's another, another compelling uh, attraction for me to write this book, because she has never been written about to any great extent in a book at, at, at book length. She's always in the margins. And when she dies horrifically, she passes from the margins. But her role was far more significant than that because she was such an important nutrient, is the word I used, and component for 18 years, which also constitute the most productive years of his, of his creative life. All the, great, all the great, great, great poems that we all know and love came during those 18 years. So the short answer is yes, but because I can't nail it down, 
I, I have suggested in other ways, and you picked up on it, so thank you. Well, to my fellow turtles, uh, as I encourage you to read this wonderful book, uh, you know, something that we've lost in the last 30 or 40 years is nobody writes letters anymore. And, of course, in, in Longfellow's day, that was the principal way of communicating, and thank goodness so many of these letters were saved. But to read uh, how amazingly eloquent and and the vocabulary and and the descriptions of, of things you say man where where did that level of artistry and just among uh, kind of everyday people where did that go but you you it, it's very elevating to read about how people used to pour their thoughts so eloquently into their correspondence uh but um uh, nick Longfellow lived in New England from 1807 to 1882, which means that he was in his prime in the years leading up to and then during the Civil War. So how did he use his writing artistry to address the evil of slavery? This is a question I get, and one of the, one of the raps against him, and I think un, uh, really unfair, is that he... he he didn't. He didn't join the abolition movement as a as a as a as a public man, and so people question where he stood on the issue. But he he clearly was anti-slavery, and he his closest friend in the world was Charles Sumner, who was beaten to within a few inches of his life on the Senate floor after the Crime Against Kansas bill. We talk about the Mutual Admiration Society, which is what they called their first club. Well, he and Sumner were the charter members, you know, and he and Sumner were lifelong members. Henry also wrote seven poems in 1842 called On Slavery. Now, you read it and you say, oh, he's not, as, he's not as tough on the slave owners as he could be. I mean, he has a poem in there called We Are Witnesses, when he describes a sunken ship, which is, uh, and there are skeletons shackled together, and he, they say, we are witnesses. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty tough. And he talks about a, a, an escaped slave who's, who bears uh, scars on his back. There are seven poems, and that was published and printed. Even his very close friend in college uh, was a classmate, Nathaniel Hawthorne. And the Hawthorne friendship is really something to read about, isn't it? Writes, and he's shocked that you would take on such a political uh, subject. But he didn't really engage it directly after that. And so people say, why did he, why was he mum about the subject? I don't believe he was. He certainly was vocal about it privately. He gave money to uh, escaped slaves and the Underground Railroad, that's documented in his account books. He certainly supported his friend Sumner. But Longfellow did not engage contemporary subjects directly. But when you read, like Paul Revere's Ride, which was published virtually on the day that the Civil War starts in 1861, everyone thinks he's talking about, you know, a, a, an event in the Revolutionary War. But he's really saying, America, we have a union, wake up. Let me just read the line, I, the final lines of that of Paul Revere's ride. He, he writes, For born on the night wind of the past, through all our history to the last, in the hour of darkness and peril and need, the people will, will, he switches to future tense, doesn't he? The people will waken and listen to hear the hurrying hoofbeats of that steed and the midnight message of Paul Revere. The hour of darkness and peril and need. He was talking about the then and now and what's going on. And people, please, 
our union is what matters. Let's try to preserve this. This That's one poem. But he does it also in the building of the ship. Sail on, O ship of state. Sail on, O union, strong and great. How, how extraordinary is that poem that when it's read to Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War, he's reduced to tears. How resonant is it? It's all documented that at the darkest days of World War II, Franklin Roosevelt, from memory, pens out that exact same uh, stanza and has Wendell Wilkie, who he recently defeated for president, the good Republican, but a good and decent man, and deliver that, that phrase to Winston Churchill, who he has yet to meet. And Churchill goes ahead and he reads it before Parliament and on the BBC. It's Longfellow being, being irrelevant and resonant and speaking about things that matter. So he, he, his poetry, in my view, spoke to the people in the way that he was best suited to do as a poet. So I don't know if that answers the question, but uh, I, I know I was asked in a recent broadcast, how can you explain how, why Longfellow was so obtuse to the issue? And I said, I, 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 just, I just reject that characterization. I don't believe he was obtuse. He just, he just engaged it in a way that was consistent with his character and his personality and his decency. Well, um, during the Civil War, uh, Longfellow's son, Charlie, uh, joined the Union Army. Don't you love Charlie? <laughs> I do love Charlie. And, and on this, in our group today is my friend Charlie Spradley. And uh, Charlie was, was badly injured. And, uh, and during, in the midst of the, and, and Longfellow goes to comfort him as he uh, rehabilitates and heals. And it inspires uh him to write uh, the poem about the Christmas bells. No wonderful. Uh, and so, so talk about which who was it Johnny Mercer uh, used as the inspiration for his I heard the bells on Christmas Day that all of us listened to Bing Crosby sing when we were growing up. Well, Mercer left out the second couple of stanzas too, which are very dark, you know, but, but then he does swing back to being hopeful. But as you said, Charlie was wounded, very grievously wounded. I mean, and one of the artifacts at the Longfellow House, they saved everything. I mean, had they known about DNA, I'm sure they would have saved finger, finger uh, nail clippings. They saved everything. Henry saved the pencils that he wrote his poems with. And he has little legends with this book anyway. But one of, the, one of the items that they save is Charlie's field jacket with two holes in the back of it. One under one shoulder blade with a, bolt, with a musket ball entered and the other on the other side where it exited. And he darn near died from these wounds. And Henry went down to Virginia, further south he ever traveled, and uh, down to D.C. actually. And but uh, but he was staying in Washington, and he was staying in the Ebbett House. And one Sunday morning, he wakes up and he hears church bells ringing. He hears church bells ringing at the same time because right across the Potomac River, he can hear the artillery, the cannonade, and what a Pardon me, what a paradox that, that is for him. That he, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play of peace and earth, goodwill to men. Then in the next stanza, which I don't know, can't do from memory, but he talks about the cannonade from the South. And, and you talk about you know, the irony of, of, of two sounds, artillery and church bells. And what do we make of that? And people, you know, I mean, it's a very, very, very moving, moving poem. And the only reason we know that 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 inspired that is because of a letter he wrote to his son, Ernest, and he describes the scene. And six months later, he writes the poem. He never really tells you as, as wonderful as his journal is. He's a professional and he doesn't tell us enough about his creative process. So for that, you have to dig. 
you have to look around and you have to go through the letter. I'd like to make a quick comment, if I could, Talmadge, because sure. you made the point about how wonderful these letters are. What you were doing, and thank you for doing that, was, was telling me that you hear their voices in my book. And I, as a writer, I believe in letting people speak. And if I, and if I am privileged and able to allow them to speak in their own voices, this as a journalist and a writer of contemporary nonfiction, what a, what a treasure this is. And so what, what a joy it was for me to go back to the 19th century, 200 years almost, and to, and to have these people come alive, literally, in my hands. And they were, you don't, believe me, you, I do not mess with anything. I never do anyway. But the quotes, those letters, those quotations that you read are authentic. The sentences are perfect. Everything works. Fanny's a brilliant writer. 900 of her letters survive, most of them used for the first time in my book. Henry wrote 11,000, 12,000 surviving letters, and all of the incoming correspondence he received, he saved. And that's at the Harvard Library, which I was able to use, that nobody has ever seen fit to use before. But I said, my goodness, there's magnificent material there when you get an, when you get an exchange, you know, a, a back and forth and a conversation. So I love the 19th century so much. I, I hope I'm able to do another book. You know, I don't. I don't know if I'll ever get a subject quite like this one, quite as compelling for me. But, but well, uh, as we've touched on a couple of times, uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, uh, like the Turtle Creek Breakfast Club, understood the importance of friendship among a body of men, and throughout his adult life, he participated in regularly scheduled men's gatherings, uh, one called the Mutual Admiration Society, one called the Saturday Club, one called the Dante Club. So what's your assessment of why staying connected to his friends on a regular basis was, was so important to him? I think it was essential. I think it was nurturing. And, um, you know, I had a question at an event the other night, and I'm asked as in the 21st century, do I think Longfellow was manic depressive? And then did he have, you know, uh, Polars, whatever they call it, you know. I said, yeah, I, I'm, first of all, I'm not a professional. What do I know about these evaluations? But probably he was manic depressive. But in, in his greatest moments of need, he, his friends, his friends are there for him. And you see that in his letters. And when he's, he, he's actually suffering and he goes to Europe in 1842 because his wife, Fanny, has been rejecting him to this point. He's basically close to a nervous breakdown. I think it's only because of his friendships, his very, very close friendships that sustain him. And always, you'll find one thing about Longfellow, and I asked, what's my, the biggest surprise I found? And I, I can't say I was really surprised, but I was just illumined. I was reinforced by the fact that how decent and good a man he was. When you were his friend, you were his friend forever. He would never say an ill word and did not about anyone, as far as I can see. Even he was savaged by Edgar Allan Poe, who never met him, but he was savaged by him. To find him responding in a negative way, you can't find it. And he once tells uh, a someone, he said, you know, he wasn't talking about Poe, but he was talking about Poe. And he tells this young man, William Winter, he said, let me give some advice to you. You, you will be attacked at some point. And my advice to you is to ignore it. Stay, stay above it. Don't engage it. And it drove Poe nuts. It drove him crazy that he wouldn't. Poe called up my little Longfellow war. It's accusing him of plagiarism and all sorts of crazy things, which he finally retracted. You'll read about that in the book.
book as well. But his friends, his friends came forward to sustain him there, didn't they? Uh, a person we still don't know who it was. I think it might have been Felton, Cornelius Conway Felton, one of the Five of Clubs. Five of Clubs was the Mutual Admiration Society. They called them. They were the Five of Clubs, but they were also the Mutual Admiration. But they wrote someone called him, calling himself Outis, which was a Greek word for nobody. Wrote an essay in defense of Longfellow that basically demolished all of Poe's arguments, and Poe had to retract his ridiculous allegations of plagiarism. But friendship was even Fanny, who he loved, adored. She said even, and to one of her friends, she said, Henry has his friends who he can only communicate with his male friends on a certain level, as I have you. And she's writing this to her friend, Emmeline. And she said, Henry gets jealous when I tell him this. There are only things I can say to you, dearest Emmeline, as he can only say things to his closest friends that only a woman can understand from a woman. And this is Fanny talking about her husband, seeing this quality also in her husband. So I, I think that the quality of friendship was essential and uh, essential to who he was and what he was. And it was with him to the end of his life. Bob, uh, what's our timing? What's your uh, wanting to... Well, we've got about another five or 10 minutes if we've got some questions and uh, maybe a good time if you're ready to open it up for that. <clears throat> well, I just wasn't sure of the time. Uh, but uh, if anybody has any questions, obviously uh, unmute yourself. Uh, and uh, if anybody's thinking about that during this, <laughs> while you're thinking about it, but but you've touched on his personality, his emotional intelligence, and essentially it was it was quietly radiant is the way that, that I read it. So give your best description, Nick, of what it was like to encounter uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow in person. You know, I'm, it's funny. You, you say moments, people I'd like to meet, I'd love to. I used to fantasize about interviewing William Shakespeare in the Boston Public Garden you know, back in the day when I used to go in all the time to interview authors and what that might be like, you know, what, what kinds of things would we talk about? And I began to feel that way about Henry and Fanny, his wife. I have to tell you, I developed an extraordinary crush on her because she did, she's absolutely brilliant and she does not suffer fools gladly. I mean, she says at one point, if I may go off on an aside, <clears throat> somebody was trying to impress her when she was before her marriage, but how much they knew about art, about what she knew everything. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm another person who sees only with his eyes, who sees only with his eyes. Only He's telling me what he sees, but not necessarily what he understands. And I tried to find as many comments as I could about people of their, of their response to having met and what it was like to be with Longfellow and Annie Adams Fields, uh, James T. Fields, his wife, brilliant woman. She's a possible biograph bi biographical subject by the way, unbelievable woman. And she describes, especially after Fanny's death, having these dinner parties, she had these literary salons, and she describes having people and Longfellow always listened. He didn't talk. And the one person said to him, you know, Longfellow, you never say much about yourself, do you? He said, no, I guess I don't. And then they said, well, another fellow said, well, you know what? Once I heard, and the long fellow cut him right off. He said, no, you didn't. He really wanted to hear what you had to say. And another person said, the most amazing thing about Longfellow is that for, the, for whatever, however much time you are spending with him, with him, you are the only person in the room. He's listening. 
he's looking at you directly in the eyes and he's comprehending. As a young man who worked at Fields, he began his career at uh, Mead, I believe. Quote him in the book. And he, he describes what it was like to be a 17, 18-year-old boy working as a clerk in Tickner and Fields. And now Henry is world-renowned, and he would come in to t- meet with his publisher. And all the other great writers of the day would come in. But he said it was a blessed event when Longfellow came in because he knew all of us. He would, he would address us by name. He would say, well, boys, here we go again. And he said, I, I, can't, I can't recall the exact precise words. But it was almost, a, he said it was a beautiful moment when Longfellow would come into the office. And, and for us, we were in his presence and, and, and there was nobody else. And I think he made people feel that way. He listened to them and he, he valued and treasured his friendships and his relationships. And, and I think that people who got to know him respected that and understood that about him. But he was also very private in many ways, which I discuss in the book, too. And I think that might have a lot to do with why he didn't go out and engage directly so many of the of the issues today of the day. And really, is that a right? His friend Sumner once said, Longfellow is not a person you should expect war odes from, war odes. He said he will not write these, these, these uh, stirring poems that will go out and uh, uh, have you go out and uh, pick up arms and confront the enemy and the blah, blah, blah. No, he, he will do it in other ways. He will engage things in other ways. So I, I guess that, that's uh, that's kind of the, the long answer to your question, Talmadge. Does anybody uh, have yeah, any? Can I ask a question, Talmadge? Sure, um, Joe. Uh, Nick, the, he he was also, you know, he was a contemporary, I assume contemporary, I mean, the same era of all these other literary, American literary greats, and they all lived within, you know, a few miles of each other, like Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson and Louisa May Alcott. Can you describe, did he have relationships, you know, friendships with these other authors who all lived so close to him? Yes, and I think I discussed it in the book. So uh, he was a classmate at Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine, with Nathaniel Hawthorne. So, I mean, the class of 1825 had Longfellow and Hawthorne in the same class of 38 graduates. <clears throat> they weren't, he and Hawthorne weren't that friendly in college, but they became very friendly afterwards. Henry graduated at the age of 18, so he was younger than most of the other graduates. But he was a, a perfect student. And, uh, but he and Hawthorne became very friendly. Hawthorne gives him the idea for, uh, for Evangeline. They're having dinner in Craigie House one night, and Hawthorne has come to visit from the North Shore of Boston. He's brought a minister with him. And after dinner, Longfellow says, oh, well, uh, uh, Hawthorne, what are you up to? What are you working on these days? And he says, I've got nothing, nothing, nothing has interested me. And so the minister says, well, what about, he says, I gave you something a couple months ago. What about that? Wasn't that a good idea? And Hawthorne says, well, it's not in my vein. And Henry perks up and says, well, maybe it's in my vein. Tell me about it. Well, it's a story about this Acadian woman who, on her wedding day in uh, Nova Scotia, is separated from her husband, and he, because of the British expulsion of the, uh, following the French and Indian War, and she spends the rest of her life searching for him, and all of a sudden, you've got the seed for what becomes Evangeline. He was very friendly with Emerson, uh, uh, and Sumner, his, this is complicated, can't get into it here, but Sumner is rejected by the Beacon Hill elite because of his very, very active uh, abolitionist stance, where other people on Beacon Hill want a more restrained 
approach. They want, they feel states' rights should be applied to resolving our differences, and and they felt that a secession would lead to a civil war, which indeed it did. But it caused a problem with Sumner and Fanny Appleton's father, who was Nathan Appleton, who was a textile manufacturer, and they had been very close, but now they were no longer friendly. So one night. Uh, Henry writes a letter to Sumner, who's expected for dinner the next day. He says, Sumner, don't come tomorrow. There'll be someone here you won't, you will not want to meet. He's talking about Nathan Appleton. Why not come on Friday when there is someone who will be here? Uh, Thoreau. He said, Thoreau and, uh, Thoreau and Emerson will be here. So come and visit with them. So they, he entertained in, in his house and they had small dinner parties. He interacted very closely with Hawthorne. As I said, Hawthorne gave him the idea for arguably one of his greatest poems. And uh, and I try to give you a sense of that. He wasn't that close with Thoreau. And, and, and Emerson, don't forget, he was not, Henry was not one of the transcendentalists, but uh, they they intermingle, the, the group, uh, they, they, uh, they, have, they have relationships. The Atlantic Monthly is established in 1857 through a club, the Saturday Club. It's, uh, it's at its very first meeting, its group, they discuss forming a magazine, a literary magazine of the Concord, Boston, Cambridge elite. And Emerson, Emerson is the founder, James Russell Lowell is there, and they say maybe Longfellow will write a poem for us. And he, he winds up writing a poem about Florence Nightingale. It's in the very first premier issue of the, the Atlantic Monthly, which comes out of the meeting of that particular mutual admiration society. So yes, he did interact with many of the uh, literary figures of, of the day. And I, I tried to give you a sense of that in the book. And, uh, but, but many of the numbers, that, the names that you mentioned are, are in the book and, and their relationships with Henry are developed. Nick, how, how long did you work on this book? Uh, I, I got the idea again in 2007 when I did that Smithsonian piece. I had been tinkering with it and gathering information. But when I finished my last book in 2013, which was the paper book, that's basically when I started in earnest when I threw everything into it. So however many, I say 12 years because uh, whatever it was, uh, 2007 is when I first uh, came up with the idea when I started pitching it to my editor in New York. Selling Longfellow was not an easy sell. Let me tell you, I confide this. And still today, right now, it's not an easy sell. There are people who regard him as a spent force, you know, that he's no longer relevant, that he's been cast out of the canon, which I thought was very unfair. There is another movement to restore him. To uh, He can never achieve the fame that he did. Nobody expects that. But don't dismiss him from the canon because you don't like poems that rhyme. You know, one of the raps against him is he wrote these poems that people, the children loved. My goodness, if children love the poems, how can it be so, how can they be so good, you know? Uh, read, but read them. Read one of those poems. Oh, they're beautiful. Uh, but I started in 2007, but in earnest after I finished the paper book. And uh, so it's been about six or seven years of active full-time work. And I'm still learning things that could could, could have gotten in the book. I just got, well, I don't have time, but something came to me yesterday. I said, God, I wish I'd known that. Uh, Frederick Douglass, so I'll tell you briefly, Frederick Douglass quoted the Psalm of Life, that poem, the Psalm of Life, let the bed, dead past bury its dead in his famous July 4th, 1852 oration. I didn't know that because he doesn't quote them. I just didn't find it. A reader, a professor at Holy Cross, retired 
said, Nick, did you know about this? And then I said, holy mackerel. I said, Frederick Douglass wrote him a letter. I have a copy of it. And I found it. And he wrote the letter to Henry two weeks before the speech. So I didn't think it was important when I saw that letter because the context wasn't much. But now that I see the bigger picture and I have a long discussion about the psalm of life in there, Henry Ford said that was that poem that made him who he was. He saved the Wayside Inn out here, which is where Henry got the idea for Tales of Wayside Inn as a tribute to that poem, Psalm of Life. But that's something I just came across yesterday. And if I could have got it in the book, then, you know, you're never done. That's the point. You can you can research something for 15 years, Talmadge, as you all know, and you're always finding new things. And I hear from readers like John Anderson, who I hadn't heard from in years. I, he used to review for me 20, 30 years ago when I was a book review editor in Worcester. And he said, Nick, I don't know if you know about this. Wow. You know, but that's wonderful hearing from people who read and have uh, no other things about Longfellow. You're always learning new, exciting things. Well, I'll uh, maybe close this session uh, with a little poignancy, and that is, as I was reading the Wall Street Journal review of Nick's book, and it was really the first time I'd perhaps thought of Longfellow in decades, and it brought back into my memory that... <clears throat> My grandfather, who was born in 1903, and like many people of his generation, quit school after the eighth grade, but nonetheless was a lifelong reader. But during grade school, in their little textbooks, they had lots of Longfellow poems, which the students uh, were required to memorize. And, of course, anything you memorize when you're a child stays with you the rest of your life. And so uh, in this, my Grandfather was a farmer, and in the summer, my brother and I would uh, work with him on the farm and build fences and sheds and do whatever needed to be done. And in the middle of this, you know, manual labor with my grandfather, something would trigger him to start reciting Longfellow. Wow. And uh, it, it was so elevating to hear this, you know, man in his 60s from out of nowhere reciting this rhythmic, uh, historic poetry it just that has stayed with me the rest of my life and so uh, I felt like uh, it was a circle of life experience uh, at this stage for me to to know a whole lot more about the man who inspired the poetry that my grandfather memorized. Talmadge I can't tell you how often I've heard stories not unlike that from people uh, a very good friend of mine Nicholas Gage who wrote a book called Eleni you've probably heard of it he happens to be a friend and a neighbor, and he and he came here from Greece as a refugee. From the his mother was killed by the communists during the Greek Civil War, and he came here and he wrote this book. He was a big writer for the New York Times, and he just wrote me out of the woodwork. I hadn't heard from him in a while, and he sent me an email. He said, "Nick, I just read in two sittings or whatever it was your Cross of Snow, and I can't tell you how much it moved me." He said some very flattering things. He said, "I still go back when I was a kid who came to America." you know, fresh from Greece as a refugee. And one of the first things I learned as I was learning how to speak English was the Psalm of Life. Again, that very same poem, and I can still still recite from memory. Some, I mean, you know, you hear stories like that, like the one you just told. And Lawrence Buell, the retired professor at Harvard, I said, Lawrence, back in that, Mr. Professor Buell, I didn't call him Lawrence, he did a, 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 a smaller collection of Longfellow's po poems in the 1980s. I said, what, what 
you know, you you weren't known for being a Longfellow scholar. You're more of a transcendental uh, guy. He said, my father loved Longfellow. And my father quoted Longfellow. His, his favorite was Tales of a Wayside. He she could recite it out, recite from them out loud. Out loud. And he was still alive in the 80s. And I thought if it meant that much to my father, it meant enough to me to, to do something like this. So he was offered an opportunity to do a small edition of Longfellow's poetry. And he did it because of his respect for his father, his father's love for Longfellow. Again, it's the same kind of story you're telling me. Right now, I, I can't tell you how often I've heard stories like that, and they touch me every time I hear them. So I'm just, I've just added yours to the list, okay? Is that all right with you, or can I use it? Please. <laughs> Please use it. Extend my – in fact, if you saw at the end of my review, I dedicated the review to the memory of my grandfather who died in 1992. Uh, because if I had not had that experience, I don't know that I would have been attracted to your book the way I was. There you go. Somebody heard me on the Eric Metaxas show just a couple – week a week or so ago. And sent me an email through my website. And just said, you know, I'd forgotten Hiawatha. He was kind of my age, and I'd read it 50, 60 years ago. And he and this program, oh, that wasn't Eric Texas, it was another program. I was on National National Review Radio, where all we talked about was that poem. And he said, I'm, I'm inspired. I've gone out and gotten the poem, and thank you for bringing it back. And he said, I, I had forgotten how good it is. People mocked that poem because it was on the shores of Gitch. You know, you want to mock him, go to the Gitchigumi line. There are wonderful, wonderful lines in that poem when he's when the when the chief says, you know, your your, your strength is in your union. Again, he's talking about America. He's not talking about tribes from three hundred years ago. He's talking about your strength is in your union, your weakness is in your division. You know, and, and, and that is in the, in the prologue to Hiawatha. But this fellow contacted me out of the woodwork, as we say, and just telling me thanks for. Uh, you know, prompting me to go back and rediscover a poem of by you. Nick Bosbane's biography of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow is an enchanting book about a true American hero who led the movement for the creation of a national literature. If it isn't nominated for the major book awards in 2020, I'll be shocked. You can find Nick Bosbane's Cross of Snow Longfellow biography wherever books are sold. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.